I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's a great delight and a huge honour to welcome Javier Cercas here today. Um, we'll be talking about his latest book, The Anatomy of a Moment. Let me welcome also our panellists, um, Lisa Hilton and Professor Paul Preston. Thanks to all of them for being here. Thanks also to English Pen, in association with whom this event takes place. Um, their members pledge themselves to do the utmost to dispel race, class and national hatreds and to champion the ideal of one humanity living in peace in the world. And their Writers in Translation programme has championed over 40 titles by writers from all over the globe, including Javier Cercas's The Anatomy of a Moment. I think without further ado, I should hand over to our panel. Thank you. Good afternoon. Javier Cercas is one of Spain's most distinguished writers. He's the author of several best-selling novels. He's translated all over the world. And he's won many literary awards, including the Spanish Prize for National Narrative for Anatomy of a Moment in 2009. This was exceptionally given um, for the book because the prize is normally given to um, a fiction writer. Professor Paul Preston is based here in London at the LSE, but he spends much of his time in Spain, where he's recognized as perhaps the greatest scholar of the Spanish Civil War period. He has been awarded the Premier International Ramon Hlul, the most prestigious international academic prize awarded in Catalonia, and has recently received Spain's highest honour, the Gran Cruz de la Orden de Isabel de Católica. His latest book, The Spanish Holocaust, will be available in English in 2012. Um, before we begin, I would like to read just one sentence from Anatomy of a Moment. Um, the context is the comparison between um, the Prime Minister, Suarez, and the um, character played by Emanuele Bardone in the film Gianno della Rovere. It comes towards the end of the book. In spite of that, it's likely that during this era of disasters, while the moment he would give up the job of Prime Minister and the moment of the military coup approached, and he imagined himself in the centre of the ring, Blind and staggering and sobbing amid the howling of the spectators and the heat of the lights, politically sunk and personally broken, Suarez would have been fulfilling his aristocratic role of progressive statesman more than ever 
increasingly convinced he was the final bastion of democracy when all democracy's defences were tumbling down, increasingly sure that the innumerable political manoeuvres undertaken against him were pushing open the doors of democracy to the enemies of democracy, ever more profoundly invested with the dignity of his position as the Prime Minister of Democracy and his responsibility as the maker of democracy, the character ever more incorporated in his person, like an invented Suarez, but more real than the real Suarez, because he was superimposed on the real one, transcending him, like an actor about to interpret the scene that will justify him to history, hidden behind a mask which, rather than covering, reveals his authentic face, like an Emanuele Bardone, now converted once and for all into General della Rovere, who, on the evening of the 23rd of February, at the moment of truth, while the bullets whizzed around him in the chamber of the Cortes and the deputies sought shelter under their benches, would have remained in his amid the roar of battle to calm the fear of his comrades and help them to face up to the misfortune with these words. Friends, this is your Prime Minister speaking. Show some dignity and self-control. Be men. And what's really extraordinary about this great swooping spiral of prose is that Javier has a unique ability to make his sentences enact the examples that he's trying to discuss. They have an extraordinary effect. The analogies blend into the real characters and out, and out again, like ink on a piece of tissue paper when it's been dipped into water. So Anatomy is, in some ways, a very meditative book. It has an extraordinary focus and a great range of, of imaginative um, reach. It's also extremely exciting, and it begins with a very particular moment. 23 minutes past six on the 23rd of February 1981, the Spanish Parliament, the Cortes, are voting for the investiture of a new prime minister when a group of civil guards burst into the chamber and begin shooting. The representatives dive for cover and three men are left standing. So I thought we might begin today by learning briefly from Javier and from Paul who these men were and why this moment was so cataclysmic in Spanish history. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. Let me tell you a story before I try to answer this question. It's a story I always tell in occasions like this. The first time Roman Jacobson, the great rational linguistics, went to Harvard, he was welcomed by the president of the university, who told him, oh, Mr. Jacobson, somebody told me that you speak 14 languages. And Jacobson said, yeah, it's true, but I speak all of them in Russian. <laughs> so I speak English, as you see, as other languages, but I speak all of them in Spanish. But Paul Preston is bilingual, so no problem. If I have a problem, I'm sure he will be with me. I hope so. <laughs> what is the, the, uh, this moment? If I, if I have to explain this to a foreign audience, I always say the same thing. Uh, this 23rd February coup is coup d'etat is our Kennedy's assassination. In what sense? It's uh, in the sense that it's the exact point where all the demons of our recent past converge. This is one reason why. Uh, there's another reason, and we can maybe discuss that later, which makes this thing very interesting, in my opinion, is that. You know, there's no a real American guy who has not a theory on the uh, Kennedy's assassination. If, if, a, if an American guy has not a theory on the Kennedy's assassination, he's not a real American guy. <laughs> so in, the, in Spain, it's the same thing with the 23rd February coup d'etat. 
if you ask, meet the Spanish guy, okay, what's your theory about your, the coup d'etat? And he says, I don't have one. He's not Spanish. <laughs> you know, we were, it was six years after Franco's death. And then we thought we were Democrats and we were, you know, Europeans, like English, French, blah, blah, blah. And that day, these guys entered the parliament. This guy, who was disguised like a torero or something like that, you know, with the tricornio and so on and so forth. And 200 centuries of history came back to us, right? Uh, you know, national sport in Spain is not football. It's not even, well, it's civil war or coup d'etat. So that was the last one. Um, it was the last moment in which, well, let me put it that way. I put it in a more hard way. I don't, I don't know if Paul would be with me. But in my opinion, after writing this book, I discovered that not only this moment, this 23rd February uh, coup d'etat, but exactly that moment was the moment in, where, in which democracy in Spain really began. And perhaps you could explain to us, Paul, a little more about the um, political context of the coup in terms of um, Spanish history further back in the century. Why is 1981 the beginning of democracy when Franco had already been dead for so many years? Well, to a certain extent, I think the, the attempted coup was an attempt by the right, particularly, obviously, certain sectors of the army, to take their revenge or to put the clock back for what they probably saw as the confidence trick of the transition to democracy. One of the things that happens in Spain a lot now, as more and more people have been born since the transition to democracy, which took place between 1976 and 1981, basically, or you, you could argue it actually starts after, after 1982 when the socialists come into power, but more and more people talk all the time about the deficiencies of democracy, the, the, the deficiencies of the transition. And the fact is, I would argue, that the, the transition to democracy that took place during those years after the death of Franco was probably the best transition possible under amazingly difficult circumstances. Basically, when Franco died, he had left a whole series of institutional measures in place that would ensure that the dictatorship continued with the king as a kind of puppet, a symbolic head of, of, of the dictatorship. But everything was in place. The famous phrase, everything is tied down and well tied down, which was a, a, a refrain of Franco's. And actually, in, in my biography of the king, I say actually what he meant was the king was tied down and well tied down because there were all of these very complex constitutional measures put into place to ensure the dictatorship would continue to remain in place. But there were also a number of really uh, heavy measures behind this. The, the Spanish armed forces had been trained since Franco's time not to see themselves as the defenders of Spain from external enemies, but as the defenders of a particular definition of Spain from internal enemies, and that meant trade unionists, leftists, Democrats, and so on. There was the civil guard, which was uh, a gendarmerie with sort of very strong powers, and which was, again, uh, a body which saw itself as defending the political status quo. There was the armed police called the Grises, because they used to wear grey uniforms. And there were 200,000 phalangists with, with licenses to carry guns. So the death of Franco did not necessarily mean there was going to be a big change. And in fact, 
What happened was that between his death and the first democratic elections in in June of 1977 was there was a transaction, there was a negotiation. And that negotiation was led on the right-wing side by the most progressive elements, those who believe something has to change so that things can stay the same, and the most moderate elements on the left. And actually, where the confidence trick came in is actually, you could say the part of the process was carried out by three people. An empresario, who was the king, a scriptwriter, who was a man called Torquato Fernandez Miranda, who actually worked out amazingly sneaky ways of dismantling all of these constitutional safeguards that Franco had had written. So there could be a legal and bloodless transition. So we have an empresario, the king, a scriptwriter, Torquato, and an actor who is one of the central protagonists of Javier's book, Adolfo Suarez. Now, in a way, the role of the king was to keep the army quiet, the army, the civil guard, all of these forces that are, di- are committed to the safeguarding and the preservation of the dictatorship, to keep them quiet. Because the, 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 the confidence trick is that the king is still committed to the dictatorship, but he isn't. And so with Torquato, uh, with Suarez, and of course with the collaboration of the moderate sectors of the left, the beginnings are made of democracy. But of course the army and the phalange, they're seething away. And so what happens on the night of the 23rd of February 1981 is what Javier describes so vibrantly and so colourfully in his book. Thank you. The three people that um, you focus on principally in the book, um, your three main protagonists, could you tell us a little bit more about them, please? Well, them? Yes. I call them the heroes of treason, which is an oxymoron. All the book is an oxymoron. You know, remember this, this rhetorical figure, happy marriage, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they are, in my opinion, the main... I mean, the guys who, in a sense organized this transition from dictatorship to democracy that Paul has described very well. One of them was uh, a general from Franco's army, which was uh, General Gutierrez Mellado, and he tried, he was uh, one of traitors because he made treason to his, you know, uh, Franco's army. Uh, He changed, he tried to change, in fact, he he changed a uh, dictatorship, uh, the, uh, the uh, a army of uh, absolutely loyal to Franco to a democratic army. Uh, Santiago Carrillo was a uh, uh, secretary general of uh, PC, which was the uh, Communist Party. He had been for a long time, and he was the big traitor of the left in the sense that he was during a long time, of course, a Stalinist convinced the Stalinist, and he was, uh, you know, he believed in, in, in revolution. He believed in, of course, uh, the return of re- the Republic to, to Spain after Franco's death. Uh, well, in a series of things. And to change a dictatorship for a democracy, he was the traitor of all this. He said, no, we don't want that. We don't want the revolution. We don't want, you know, to install a communist society or a socialist society. We don't want, we don't even want the Republic back. We accept Monarchy, etc. And finally, the big, the biggest trader, which was the main character in my book, which is Adolfo Suarez. This guy was social and political climber in, in, during the Frankism. And he was the Kennedy 
guy again in in the Spanish, you know, at the beginning of the uh, democracy because people thought Frankist people thought, well, uh, he's going to be the guy that he can do one thing which is very difficult is Frankism without Franco. He could do that. When he was uh, when the king put him as a prime minister, the only people who celebrated that was ultra left uh, rightist people like guerrilleros de Cristo Rey and things like that. People of extreme le- uh, right. So he was, you know, the, the, the dream of all these people. And he was the big traitor because in less than a year, he changed the dictatorship for the democracy. And all these free people were really hated by their comrades. And without this big treason, uh, democracy in Spain would be impossible. So do you think that um, ultimately, I mean, you're, you're quite uh, critical of, of Suarez throughout the book, you're quite hard on him in terms of his social climbing, his snobbery, his treachery, his deceitfulness, and yet somehow, perversely, as you say, oxymoronically, he, he emerged at least to me as something of a hero. Do, yeah, you, absolutely. do you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. Hero of treason. Uh, exactly. I mean, would, in would the sense... Would you also endorse no, that view, Paul? Let me, let, me, let, me, let, let me tell you, I mean, Loyalty, you, we accept loyalty as a virtue, mm-hmm. but in certain, at certain point in life and history, treason must be, can be a virtue, more difficult. Mm-hmm. You should be braver to do that than to be loyal. And that moment is one of that moment, and, and these moments. And in my opinion, I'm serious, I mean, I think he was brave. My first idea when I began the book was this guy was awful, like everybody thought in Spain was an awful guy, you know, a bastard and social climber, blah, 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 blah. And uh, when I finished the book, uh, my opinion is totally the contrary, exactly the contrary. I mean, I think he was, he was extraordinary, in fact. Did, I mean, did you undergo a similar process with Suarez when you read Javier's book? Did you feel that you started off hating him and ended up rather admiring him? Or is your perspective different? Well, I'm a lot older than Javier. So I remember when, I mean, I remember following the transition as it happened. You know, I was in Spain part of the time and I followed it very closely from here. And like many, I was appalled when he was named as prime minister in June of 19, of 1976, precisely because he was a phalangist apparatchik. So in that sense, I was very critical. In 1986, I wrote a book about the transition called The Triumph of Democracy. And which was when I developed this idea of the empresario, the scriptwriter, and the and, and, and the principal actor. And by then I'd started to have a, a somewhat different view. Now, in fact, to me, one of the joys of Javier's book is the savagery of the language, which I think uh, Anne McLean's done a terrific translation, but I think she softened it a little. Um, <laughs> I think because the, the descriptions of Suarez as a sort of low-down, cheating, snivelling card sharp and so on, and not, I mean, I as a professional historian couldn't, wouldn't get away with it. Well, I'd probably be banned from, you know, the Guild of Historians if I used language like that. But of course I know exactly where, where, where he's coming from. But I do think that the problem is that at the end, in, on, on the day, in the instant, which is the object of the book, he is, shows immense courage and, 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 that, and that, that's what everybody remembers quite rightly. His role in, if you like, swindling the right, cheating on the right, so that the treason that, that Javier is talking about, you know, was a very positive role, although not perhaps morally an admirable one, but it was, it was in historical terms, absolutely crucial. 
In the meanwhile, I mean, between those, from the, the winning the first elections in June 77 until this crisis, when, of course, he's a, in political terms, he's a broken flush. When, when, when this moment happens, he's already finished. It, there's a decline, and I, I think part of it was actually a health problem. And he had terrible health problems. But anyway, that, that's, you know, not, not crucial. But yeah, I think I, I do share Javier's views, and I just wish that my professional ethics prevented me from using the same sort of language that he does. Um, so we're talking about um, the idea of, of reassessing, um, reassessing history, reconsidering um, the way in which we perceive the past. Um, I think it's true to say that there's been a great deal of, of bitterness in Spain about the, um, the idea of a, a collective recovered memory. Is that true? Would you say that um, literature uh, of the transition has, has been bitterly criticised for attempting to arouse memories of the Francoist period or to appropriate them for political ends? Um, I just wondered if you'd like to comment well, on that. I think, in a way, this is one of the biggest problems in Spain today. I mean, the, the whole issue of the Civil War has not gone away. There is immense and bitter, what in Spain is called crispación, which I suppose means political tension. And I think it comes down to the following. I mean, to put it very crudely, there has not been in Spain a process of denazification as there was in, in Germany or, or defascistization in, in, in Italy. And if I knew Japanese, I'd tell you what it was in Japan, but anyway. Um, but obviously in those countries, in those members of the, of the Axis, the, the dictatorships were forced to dismantle and there were processes, national processes of democratic education imposed by the invading Allied forces. Obviously, that didn't happen in Spain. Franco survived the Second World War, lived until 1975, which meant he had 40 years of total control of all of the media, of the education system and so on. So during that time, Spain was subjected to a, a national brainwashing which affected an awful lot of people. Not everybody, but affected an awful lot of people. And there was created a single historical memory. The historical memory created falsely the rewriting of the past by the Franco dictatorship to justify the division of Spain into victors and vanquished, good Spaniards and bad Spaniards. So that's there, and there are generations of people who, who believe all that. They were brought up believing all of that. And now, when the families of the victims, and many historians... Try to, to, you know, to help in the process of the recovering of not the other historical memory, the many, many, many other historical memories of, of, of the victims of the dictatorship. They, we are accused of stirring up the, of stirring up uh, the ashes. We are accused of, of almost trying to provoke another civil war, which is ludicrous beyond belief. But of course it, it poses the question, what have they got to hide? Why should it bother these people? that the families of the victim want to find the graves of their, of their relatives, want to give them a, a decent burial, want to be able to commemorate their lives, or certainly remember them and so on. And I think this is the central, the central issue. I mean, that's as I see it. I yes, so, sorry, you, you, in, you sent me this email yes. with this question. Why should any nation come to terms with its past? Exactly. Yeah, my answer is... Why, why a person should come to terms to its own past? Why? Is it an obligation? Is it an artistic obligation, a political obligation, a necessity? A if form? you don't know where you come from, you, you don't know where you're going to. For sure. That's for sure. So, so, and the problem, 
that's the problem. I mean, I agree absolutely with Paul. The problem is that we don't know exactly where we come from. And that's the problem. I mean, let me put you an example that has to do with Paul's last book. It's called The, the um, Spanish Holocaust. And has, it, it's, the, it's an overwhelming overview, total view of the repression during the war. I mean, the first book, you know, that gives all this thing. And there was this article in the Spanish, in El País, which is the most important article in a newspaper in Spain, I, because I read in it, of course. <laughs> <clears throat> no, it's, let's say, leftist and so on. So uh, this was this, this article saying, well, this book by Paul Preston, uh, it's not okay because, you know, in, during the Civil War, the two sides killed people, and so they were all bad, and so it was the same thing. What Preston says is a true, absolute truth, which is uh, repression was different in nature during the Civil War. I mean, in, in, the, in, in one part, the fascists were, was a perfectly organized war of extermination. Instead, in the other, in the other side was, you know, the legitimate, the legitimate government, who, of course, did awful things, obviously. But it was not organized by the government, but by other elements, you know, people, anarchists, and so on and so forth. And the problem is that in Spain, we don't know where we come from, because we think there's a lot of people who think that we come from, you know, of course, we come from the new constitution, 1978, but we come also from a tradition of tiny periods where people try to construct democracies for Spain to be European and so on and so forth. And the problem is that uh, right now, the last one was the Republic, you know, the, the Second Republic. So we come from there. And in Spain, we, didn't, we haven't accepted that. The, the right has not accepted that. The right has not cut its bonds with, you know, Frankist time. And there's part of the left that thinks, okay, the war, you know, uh, well, yeah. Uh, in the two sides of all wars happen awful things. Uh, of course, you have Hiroshima, you have the, the, the Dresden bombardments, etc. But nobody doubts that Churchill was right, and Hitler wasn't, okay, from a political point of view. Of course, Churchill did some, some things, which were, with, or, or, Roos, or Truman, or whatever, did awful things. But the political reason was on one side. Okay, in Spain, this doesn't happen. We don't accept, we still right now, not everybody accepts that the only origin, the only possible origin of the Spanish democracy is the last democracy we had. And that's a real problem. Which brings me on to my next question. Um, this is, I believe, your first work of, of non-fiction. Um, was it politically, a political motivation that inspired you to write Anatomy of a Moment in this way? Did you feel some sense um, of obligation as an artist, as, as a writer, to engage with this, um, this very controversial and challenging period of Spanish history? No, it's, it's just a formal motivation. Let's go back to Kennedy. Okay, the first time I, I, I thought on this book was 25. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Anniversary of the coup. And when I, I, I saw this image, you know, you must know that there is, you know, of course, but maybe some people don't know, that there is the, this footage of 33 minutes of coup d'etat we have in footage in TV. Okay, I saw this image of these civil guards entering the parliament, shooting, and everybody diving for cover except these three guys. And there was this image, wonderful image, of Adolfo Suarez staying alone, there, alone by, by himself. Everybody, you know, in diving for cover, except him. And I said, wow, what, what an image. It, this is fantastic. Why, why this? It, has it some meaning, this image? The, what is the meaning of this image? And also two guys, uh, Gutierrez Mellado and Santiago Carrillo, who stayed in their places. Okay, so I began to work. I, I began to read uh, a lot of books, talking to a lot of people, um, three years. And at one point, I, wrote, I tried to write a novel, I mean, fiction, Which fiction, facts, you know, this kind of things. But at one point, I thought that I was wrong, that it was wrong to write fiction on this subject. Why? Because I read the first sentence in the book. The first sentence in the book says uh, that according to a poll published in the UK, a quarter of Britons thought Winston Churchill was a fictional character. <laughs> I say, hey, hey, wait, wait a moment. Uh, I, I wrote, uh, 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 well, okay. The point is that, as I said at the beginning, I discovered, I thought that the uh, 23rd February, it was a big fiction, an enormous fiction, collective fiction. In the same sense that it is Kennedy's assassination, a, 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 a fiction constructed during the last 30 years right now, by whom? By uh, the uh, golpistas themselves, I mean the people responsible of the coup, who tell, told a lot of lies during you know, the trial and so on and so forth. Then uh, journalists, because... They, Journalist and then popular imagination. Why journalists? There is something very important 
I want to, this, to, to tell Paul, I think you, you will agree with me. There is one very important point in this, in this subject. It's that the historians haven't worked on it. I mean, of course, I know uh, Paul has written some pages, excellent pages in your book on the king, if I don't remember. Uh, there's Javier Tuchel. But generally speaking, the historians, the real historians, like you or Javier Tuchel, who's that, anyway, that nobody has worked on it seriously. Who has worked on it, journalists? Doing this thing called instant books, meaning you work uh, two weeks and then you publish the book. <laughs> and this is, I mean, there's like hundreds of books on the coup d'etat, but it's all journalists, you know, working like two months. This is not serious. This is a very complex thing. And you, you must work for three, four years at least to, you know, get things clear. And popular imagination, you know, because, because it's perfect. And why this? Because there are no documents. That's the secret of it. I mean, there are no papers. There's nothing. So how can we work? And we can say whatever you want. You can say that as far as there are no documents, and as far as it's so, you know, spectacular, these guys entering the parliament and, uh, you know, the king and blah, 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 you can say whatever you want, as you know very well. You can say that, that it was the Vatican who organized it or, you know, whatever, the CIA, no problem. You cannot demonstrate that it's not true. So, sorry, I finished. No, I'm sorry. no, no. No, no, no just I, I finished. <laughs> I, I haven't finished. I haven't. Sorry. I haven't. Okay, I'm going to finish. So, it was, at that point, I discovered it was so, it was impossible, ridiculous, redundant, to write fiction on fiction. Well, did it make sense? <laughs> what, what did make sense? To do exactly the contrary thing. To stick to the facts. To tell, I mean, to unbury the coup from all these incredible fantasies, uh, uh, half lies, which are, you know, normal in Spanish life and so on and so forth. <laughs> well, I don't know if you agree with me, Paul. <laughs> Which bit? <laughs> I think it's a great book, first of all. As a general rule, I normally get very nervous about works of fiction about historical subjects if they use real people. So I believe that a novelist can say things and, and bring alive an atmosphere in a way that a historian who's stuck with the, the sources can't do. But once they start dealing with real people, it gets problematic. So if you like, what reconciles me immediately to your book is, is, is the fact that you're not pretending to put words into people's mouth. I mean, you do occasionally put thoughts into their heads that I wonder about, because in some cases, you know, Suarez has been a vegetable for some time now. So it's difficult to know what went on in his head. But in, in, in general terms, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. And they, there's this huge, literature on the coup and the people who really know i mean tejero we don't even know if tejero can read and write so whether tejero will ever write his memoirs is a problem armada you know well you've spoken to him i've spoken to him no one's ever going to get the truth out of armada um so you know all power to your elbow. This is as good, this is as, good as we're, we're going to get for some time no to but there's just one thing i never put uh Things uh, I, I make conjectures, which is different. I mean, right. I, I would say it's conjectural history in the sense that maybe he could have done this or that. I mean, fiction, not invention. But two months ago, I was with uh, Anthony Beaver, 
around here and uh, public event like this. And uh, he told me some, something which is wonderful. He says, well, you know, in uh, English historical tradition, we don't have problems with imagination. I mean, we accept, like E.H. Carr, for instance, talks about the need of imagination, which is not invention. Invention, I mean, historian cannot invent, but imagination in the sense that you, you must reconstruct the past. That's what uh, Carr says, yeah, if, I, yeah. if I remember. So I try to imagine and to make conjectures out of things, you know, but I never say uh, Suarez thought that. And also, I must say one thing. I, know, I understand what you were, you were saying, and I agree with you totally, but uh, this, mixion, this book is not a mixture of fiction and reality. All novels are. I mean, if we don't accept historical characters in books, we, we cannot, I mean, from Homer to Tolstoy to, I mean, Cervantes, of course, because they're real characters, historical characters in, in, in El Quixote, whatever. I mean, this is, this is normal. The point is, I mean, uh, Napoleon in War and Peace, <laughs> whatever you want. Uh, when you are Tolstoy or you, you are a good writer, you, you lie very well and reader accepts that. If you are, a, you know, bad, then nobody accepts that. That's my, my opinion. Anyway, this book is not fiction. That's very important for this. I'm not sure it's not a novel. I'm sure it's not fiction, but I'm not sure it's not a novel. For instance, Paul, just one, one, one point. I think that the gen, uh, genres, uh, literary genres, you say that in English? Genres, okay. It's a word uh, the French stole off us. We, we pronounce it genre. Genre. Yeah, the French stole it off us. Yeah. <laughs> Dirty words from France, yeah. Uh, I, I think that they distinguish from a lot of things, but one of them is for the, the questions they pose and the answers they give. And I think that the essential question of this book is not a question that a, no, a historian or an essayist would put himself. The central question is, I mean, if a historian, I would say, would, would have asked himself about the 23rd February, what happened on the 23rd of February? Or who was Adolfo Suarez? That's a historical his, uh, question a historian would put himself to write a book. But my question is not a historic, it's a moral question. It's why Adolfo Suarez stayed in his place. This is a moral, a mor I mean, I, I don't, I can't imagine myself, a historian, uh, putting as a sent in the center of a book that question. It's impossible. It's a novelistic question, obviously. And the, a the answer is also novelistic. Why? Because the answer is that there is no answer. The, the, the answer is the quest itself, the book itself. In this sense, I think deeply that the book is a novel, and not only in this sense, in the construction, in, in, in a lot of things. So to put it, to, to finish with it, uh, this book is also, an, again, an oxymoron, in the sense that it tries, for the reasons I said before, to stick to the facts, to be a historical book, to do uh, the job of a historian uh, with my humble tools, and at the same time, to be a novel. I mean, to look for, to go back to the uh, distinction I always made of the true truth, Aristotle's truth. I mean, Aristotle says that there is the historical truth, you know, the truth of the facts, the truth, what happened to some people in some place at, certain, uh, at, at some moment, that's the historical truth. And there's also the uh, poetic or literary truth, which is, which deals with what happened to everybody in every place at every time. A universal truth, a moral truth. 
an abstract truth instead of the concrete truth of the history. Okay, this truth, in principle, they are contradictory, antagonical truths. So this book tries to look for the both truths. And that, that's why it's an oxymoron. He tries to look for the, the historical truth, what happened, the, the achievement, the, the conquest of democracy or, the, or the, the triumph of democracy, to put it your way, explains the, the, the triumph of democracy through this tiny, tiny point, hole, this, this, this moment, and, and the coup d'etat, of course. But at the, same time, at the same time, it deals with general moral truths, the, hero, the heroes of treason, that especially, that have not only to do with the Spain of the 70s and 80s. And I finished. Sorry. Well, can I just, instead of using words like moral, literary, or poetic truth, how, I mean, the word I would have used which is, is, no, is, is psychological truth, that, that your creation, and I mean, in, a, in, a, in a way, what you give us a, a very good idea of is what I'm trying to be very careful here because I don't want to contradict what I said before. But almost what must have been going through Suarez's mind to to have him sit there, and I mean the way you, you, you effectively you say he thinks he's going to die anyway, so he might as well go out in a blaze of glory. Kind of, although sitting yeah. still isn't the usual way you think of a blaze of glory. But you know, I mean, it's a psychological truth. Maybe that's not instead of moral, literary, and poetic truth, but it's certainly as well as. Yeah, 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 of course, psychological truth. I mean, I, to, to try to answer this question, this central question, of course you must work as a historian, as a, as a journalist. That's very important because we don't have documents. Well, we have a document which is incredibly important, which is the footage. That's the most important document we have. It's one of the most important, in my opinion, documents of uh, the Spanish history. You know, 35 minutes of coup d'etat. It's wonderful. Huh? That's why it's the center of the book, because that's for, for sure it's truth. It's not fantasy, no fiction, no Kennedy, no nothing. And then, and then I forgot what I was trying to say. <laughs> the, the grassy, the grassy knoll. The what? The grassy knoll. Um, I don't remember. I did, I did want to squeeze in one more question for you both before we take questions um, from the audience, which is that um, we've talked about the idea of, of Spain suffering from a huge lack of, of historical truth. And, and uh, Xavier's book, his non-fictional, fictional work of non-historical, historical fiction, whatever we want to call it, um, is, is very much, um, I, I, I think, um, a, a weapon in, in, in the battle against this, this, um, this crisis of representation. But given um, the situation uh, in, currently in Spain, do both of you, either of you, think that democracy is still vulnerable there. I, I don't think it's vulnerable to a coup d'etat. I mean, there are two massive, overwhelming differences between 1936 and either 1981 or more so 2011, 2012. One is that in the 1930s, democracy and the progressive republic was a challenge to you know, to the rich, to, you know, to the possessing classes, to put it crudely, and to the Catholic Church and to the army and so on. Uh, and secondly, it, it took place in, 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 a, in an international context in which there were Hitler and Mussolini both looking for opportunities to change the international balance of power. Now, democracy, although there's a bit of a blip in, in, in Spain, as in other countries, but nonetheless, 
Democracy has brought immense prosperity, so there isn't that factor. And secondly, Spain is a member of the European Union. I mean, there, there, there is not presently within Europe a Hitler or a Mussolini, whatever you think of Berlusconi's wig. Um, so in that sense, no, there isn't a danger. On the other hand, uh, one cannot help but feel a certain degree of trepidation about the fact that the Partido Popular, which will win the next general elections, uh, is extremely cavalier about democracy. And in that sense, there is something of a danger. But it's not, it's not exactly that we're free of dangers to democracy in this country, right, so, so one has to be very careful. What's, what's your view, have you? Uh, it's a difficult, very difficult uh, question. I'll just tell you one story, which is absolutely truth. Last week, uh, there was this journalist called Juan Cruz by El País, there's a 35 anniversary of El País, and there was he interviewed me for that, and we were talking about this exactly, precisely. And I said, "Well, you you must not pretend that our democracy uh, could be so strong, so serious, so solid as English democracy, for instance, is, because we have you know 35 years of democracy, and, and in Great Britain they have you know whole history." centuries of democracy, okay? And at that time, at that time, at that time, at that moment, he, st- he told me, okay, oh, just wait a moment. I, you know, I was with Paul Preston uh, uh, a month ago, and he told me that Spanish democracy was stronger than English democracy. <laughs> well, anyway, no. But, I just, uh, I, I didn't, that's not what I said. Uh, uh, <laughs> Paul, no, I understand that we are more critical with our own country. We see uh, the uh, the facts are our own country, but in, only in this case, I'm sure that I'm uh, you're wrong, Paul, and I'm right. <laughs> only in this um, case. I think we have a few minutes. If anyone would like to ask a question, I think there are some ladies going around with microphones. I wanted to get a question about the um, this specific episode consolidated uh, democracy in, in a way uh, by virtue of the king taking a specific step and the direction of supporting uh, democratic forces. Uh, but at the same time, it also consolidated, democ- uh, consolidated democracy, but also consolidated the monarchy. As a Republican, I have a lot of problems with the, with the, the view of supporting the monarchy in any way, even, even when it does good things. How, how long do you think it will be before people will view the monarchy as an anachronistic in Spain? I'm not monarchist. We could say monarchist no? in, in English. And I don't know, uh, not, I mean, uh, in Spain, <clears throat> I'm not talking about Great Britain, uh, any sane people who can be monarchist. I mean, it, I can understand that. Except uh, uh, Luis Maria Alzón. Anyway, uh, what I think is that in Spain, the uh, dilemma is not, is not monarchy or republican. This is not real. What is real is best or worst democracy. That's the real point. Well, the problem maybe would be, will be better for, for his son, for Felipe. But I don't think that people right now in Spain are um, against uh, Morici, not even these guys, these uh, Spanish Revolution guys, which I think that they are right, by the way. Um, but they don't ask, you know, republic or something like that. They ask real democracy, so a better democracy. That's the point in Spain, in my opinion. As everywhere, I mean, 
Do you don't want to know my views on the monarchy? Me, who's written written the biography of the king? You don't want to know my views on I I, I feel I'm really doing a very bad job here because I haven't asked the expert on the Spanish monarchy for his opinion on the question, so take it away. Right, Okay. (laughs) You're very kind. The thing is that, of course, as a result of his role during, during the transition, uh, Juan Carlos managed to turn the majority of Spaniards not into monarchists but into Juan Carlistas, and people do support and admire him and so on for his faults and his, uh, as, as well as for his immense achievements. So the big question, as Javier said, is what's going to happen? I mean, nothing, nothing's going to happen until Juan Carlos is removed from the scene, either by ill health and abdication or by death. At that point, it's all down to what will happen with, with, with the, the, the present heir of the throne, Felipe, who's an extremely intelligent young man who's been very, very well educated. But that's, that in itself is not enough. What I think will help, I mean, I, I don't consider myself a monarchist. I, I do think of myself as someone who's heavily into don't, don't fix things that aren't broken. And the thing that the monarchy offers Spain now, not historically, but now, is that it, in this context of all of this crispación, this 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 vicious, uh, st- you know, stirring things up. In fact, behind the rhetoric of don't don't stir things up, the the constant threat of civil war that comes from the PP and so on, that what the monarchy actually offers is a neutral headship of state, because if First of all, Spaniards are wrecked by endless layers of political rule. They have municipal rule, provincial rule, regional autonomy. It's it's endless. If on top of that you had another layer, elections for a president, and who would be president? Well, who would be the candidates? It would either be someone from the PSOE, so it would either have to be Felipe, or it would be José María Aznar. I rest my case. (laughs) Um, we have time for one more question, I think. Um, gentleman at the front there. Yes, um, I remember quite clearly uh, the uh, oath that uh, the present king had to swear when he was uh, under the power. Now, my impression is that he and Suarez set about methodically dismantling the fascist regime to which he had sworn uh, an oath. This doesn't come out in your book. I read it quite some time ago. I don't remember the the details. But my impression is that there was a purposeful effort on the part of the monarch and Suarez to dismantle the the system. Uh, I have in the back of my mind also that uh, Suarez, part of his family, had been sort of Republican, and uh, I think that the two of them set, set about this, this, dismantling it um, uh, and very quietly before the military realized what was, what was going on. Have you drawn any conclusions on this, on this idea? That they dismantled the, the Frankish regime? Yes, it's obvious. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, there's a fourth traitor. There's three traitors. There's a fourth traitor, which is the king. Well, you use the word traitor, which I find, uh, you know, quite, quite fr- uh, frankly, rather objectionable because um, th- these people uh, uh, made that transition possible uh, to what we must call 
democracy. Yeah, that's why I call them good traitors. I mean, they 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 were on the wrong side, and to be on the good side, they had to tr to make treason to their comrades. That's why I call them. That's what they are. I mean, people in Spain thought that. I mean, people phalangists thought that Suarez was uh, the biggest traitor. Uh, communists of the old uh, kind thought Carrillo was the biggest traitor, and so on and so forth. That's why they are the, the good traitors. And yes, of course, they dismantled uh, fr uh, uh, Frankism, of course. But it was one of the things for me more, more interesting, reading, uh, writing this book and, you know, going through uh, newspapers and reviews of that time and talking to people, is that improvisation was essential. Improvisation was essential. I mean, they didn't exactly know where to go. They, they discovered it. Uh, I mean, of course, the king knew that it was impossible to be like uh, Franco, uh, preserve all the powers that Franco gave him. I mean, total powers. It was impossible. I mean, the, the, what, what the king wanted was to, to be king. I mean, his grandfather was kicked out. His father couldn't, you know, be king. So he wanted to preserve monarchy. That was his main purpose. And Suarez wanted to, uh, well, to change something, as uh, Paul said uh, before, to change, but the idea was to change something to uh, be the same thing, more or less. And little by little, Suarez, in a short, little short time, uh, decided, saw that it was impossible, that it was necessary to create a real democracy. And the king was with him. That's my impression, that they didn't have, well, I'm, I'm sure they did, I'm, well, for Paul has studied this a lot, and he can answer the question with much authority than myself, but I'm sure that there was not a plan, previous plan, to arrive to something like that. And that's maybe, in my opinion, the secret of this success, which was extraordinary. I mean, before writing this book, I said, well, you know, the uh, transition, well, it's okay. It was very, very, very difficult I mean, very difficult, not only because of our, you know, traditions of coup d'etat, uh, et cetera, with, with our lack of confidence and tradition of democracy, but because the situation was difficult, because nobody, nobody, nobody before that had changed a democracy for a dictatorship with war, bloodshed, whatever you want. And, and that was, I mean, I remember Giovanni Sartori, which is a very serious political thinker, saying in 76 or 75, I don't remember, saying, okay, uh, it is impossible. Uh, uh, after Franco, there's going to be, if not a war, something very similar to a very serious conflict in Spain. And I remember myself, I was 30, uh, uh, 13 years old when Franco died, and uh, at home and everywhere, the idea was we're going to have serious problems. I mean, that was the idea. Civil war, something similar. And incredibly, we changed our use and we didn't kill each other Spanish guys and and that was that was really really extraordinary difficult I'm afraid that we have to stop there um, we've been asked to be quite punctual so um, I'd like to thank uh, Paul and Javier for I think a really wonderful discussion thank you both thank you very much thank you thank you, thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event for more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 